Welcome to episode 11 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. This week, we're going to be interviewing the extraordinarily talented and futuristic artist and self-styled geek Jonathan Yeo, and finding out about The Box, the exciting new art centre in Plymouth. But first, we're in the middle of Black History Month, so we wanted to tell you about an outdoor exhibition called Phenomenal Women. It runs along Queen's Walk on London's South Bank. So it's a very good exhibition to see if you're adhering to social distancing. And it is the first ever exhibition to celebrate Britain's black women professors. Shockingly, fewer than 1% of professors in Britain are black. So it's a huge inspiration to have the handful of those that are women made so visible. The exhibition has been curated by Dr Nicola Rollock, who specialises in racial justice and education in the workplace. She'll be known to some of you as the expert contributor to Channel 4's documentary, The School That Tried to End Racism, that aired this summer. Now, Dr Nicola Rollock commissioned the photographer Bill Knight to photograph 45 women professors across a range of fields from law and medicine to creative writing and sociology. Bill Knight used to be president of the Law Society and was awarded an OBE for services to regulation before he left his hugely successful successful city career to pick up his camera again. He now specialises in photographing opera, theatre and dance, as well as taking portraits. He's twice been a winner in the Portrait of Britain competition, and now he's turned his camera on these highly accomplished academic women. Now, Dr Nicola Rollick is with us today to tell us all about those photographs and the women in them. Welcome, Nicola. Good morning. Thank you. Hi, Nicola. So look, before we um, hear about the professors that are featured in this exhibition, I just wanted to mention that the exhibition represents a rare and unusually happy outcome for an event affected by COVID-19 because it was originally (laughs) meant to be mounted in the Queen Elizabeth Hall foyer, but social distancing restrictions meant it was moved outside. But of course, what that means is many more people are going to come across this exhibition and learn about the racial inequality that still exists in British academia. So we want to encourage everyone to go and see them. But Nicola, Love to hear about some of the women who are featured and also the logistics of how Bill Knight got round to photographing them all. Thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation to be on your podcast as well. So I think it's important to go back to the context of all of this, Ed, Charlotte, which is the research that I carried out and was published early in 2019 looking at the career experiences of UK black female professors. And the reason that I decided to focus on this particular group of scholars is because when we look at the data, we can see that there are, you're less likely to be a professor if you come from this group. So you're around twice as likely as black women to be a professor if you are a black man. And there are around three times as many proportionally white women as there are black female professors. And I've been curious as a black woman myself, I've been curious about why this is. So I, in 2018, set about to speak to as many of those professors as possible. And back then, actually, there were just 25 UK black female professors, and I spoke to 20 of them. And what I was what I found is that they experienced a range of challenges and barriers and setbacks that delayed their ability to reach professorship 
quickly. And so what I wanted to do in the spirit of someone who obviously understands exactly their experiences and exactly the challenges that they face in the workplace, I wanted to foreground them. I wanted to give them a platform so that other people beyond the academy could understand something about the very serious issues affecting their progression, but also honour their achievements. And so did you approach the South Bank to put on the exhibition or how did that come about? So just just to explain briefly about Bill Knight, Bill saw an article in, I think it was The Guardian, he said, um, talking about the research and he approached me and he also had a similar idea that it would be great to do these portraits, which is wonderful. So we were on the same page, as it were, in terms of wanting to move forward with this as an idea. So I commissioned him to travel around the UK to take their portraits. And some of them did go to his studio as well. And we were very much in agreement that what we wanted the portraits to to document or to show was a sense of authority and strength. And I'm sure that your listeners, hopefully if they get the chance to see the exhibition at the South Bank, will agree (laughs) that that's been conveyed (laughs) in the portraits. So that's how Bill and I came together. And then to your particular question, Ed, I approached the South Bank. um, And again, I'm really pleased that this is an approach, an agreement that was made at the start of the year, um, because we have seen a flurry of activity around uh, racial justice following the murder of George Floyd. And as you rightly say, the intention was to put it on to install it internally. But we obviously COVID hit us all, turned our lives upside down. And we didn't really want to lose either the momentum, given that this is a very unique and my understanding only exhibition of UK black female professors. So we were trying to work out how we might still honor the work, but in a COVID age. So we spent a lot of time, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, I've learnt on the job to be a curator, <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of time thinking about installation forms and pieces and shapes that would work externally. And then also what the interface of the actual portraits would be, so that it would be weatherproof and so on. Oh, yeah, I hadn't even thought about it. And have you had a lot of um, feedback from universities about your original Uh, research? I mean, it's clearly a major, major issue. So Ed, that's an excellent question. And if I may, I I want to make quite a pointed comment to the sector, which is what I've noticed. So if we we pull apart what I've been describing to you, there's been the, the research, which you'd expect me to do as an academic, so the empirical study, and then there's been the exhibition. And in many ways, we can think of the exhibition as the juicy, fun bit you know, but but what sits beneath it is actually how, as I've said, how few black female professors they are. And just for clarity for listeners who may not be aware, professorship is the highest level of the academic career structure. Now, what I've noticed is that universities have been very quick to call for or make use of the portraits. So to advertise the fact that their professors are part of this very thrilling and exciting and unique exhibition. And I am delighted about that. But Ed, I think what is really 
painful and difficult, not just for me as a person who's put all of this work together, but indeed for black, the black female professors themselves and also up and coming black female scholars, so those yet to reach professorships, is that I've not seen the same flurry of activity and engagement, indeed with the recommendations of what is quite a damning report about black women's experiences in the sector. And so that could leave one, I would say, with quite a bitter taste in one's mouth. Is there anything in the show that enables the public to get involved in this? There is a, um, an information board explaining the context of many of the issues that we've spoken about today. So explaining the context of the exhibition and some of the data that I've spoken to earlier. So there is that context and accompanying each of the portraits is a brief biog about each of the women. So talking a little bit about their area of specialism, as you've already spoken to, we have professors of pharmacy education, social work, paediatric infection, creative writing, a range of different skill sets and expertise, um, and also talking about them as individuals. But I would, to take up the spirit of your invitation, Charlotte, I would also suggest that if uh, listeners, people who see the exhibition are concerned, that they tweet about their concern and they direct it maybe to the higher education minister or to the UK Research um, Institute or any of the funding bodies so that we can drum up some really meaningful debate and hopefully action. And so who who are some of the, the stars of the show? I know uh, Bernadine Evaristo is one of them. Yes, yeah, so Professor Bernadine Evaristo indeed is one of them, Booker winner. But what I, what I think is really important with this, Charlotte, is that each of these women are stars. And the fact that these women have been able to somehow, despite the odds, make it to professorship, I have been clear that each and every one of them is a star. And I'll just pull out some random names. Um, we have Professor Adele Jones, who's Professor of Social Work. I think she's in the press release. You can see her image in the press release and online. Um, we have Professor... Farida Banda, who's a professor of law. We also have a professor of Caribbean literature and culture in Joan Anim Addo. We also have a professor of law um, in Patricia Tuitt. So there are a range of different specialisms. And as I say, for me and what I'd like your listeners to hold on to is that these women have made it against the odds and therefore each and every one of them should be seen as a star. Totally right, Nicola. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was absolutely fascinating. We don't talk enough about other areas, particularly universities. It's not a subject that's discussed no. often enough. And um, yeah. you've really opened our eyes. And hopefully, because this exhibition is so easy to go and see, uh, lots of people listening to this podcast will take the opportunity to um, nip across the river or come from South London and go and have a look. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're a total star. Thanks so much. Next, we want to turn to The Box, a wonderful museum in Plymouth and the first public square to be built in the city since 2004. 
The box has had a whopping £47 million spent on it. It's the largest arts and heritage space to open in the UK in 2020. And I think it's probably the largest arts venue between London and Exeter. The South West is not got um, enough arts venues in my view, but the box makes a big difference. It's got three buildings. It comprises the former City Museum and Art Gallery, the Central Library buildings, and also St. Luke's Church. And somehow they've all been magically put together to create a gleaming, cutting edge, interactive cultural centre with 30 new galleries and exhibition spaces. Yes, the box was meant to open in May, but along came coronavirus, so it finally opened on the 29th of September. There were two major exhibitions in the opening programme. One is making it an international contemporary art exhibition full of newly commissioned work, but the other one is the largest commemorative Mayflower exhibition in history. And here to tell us all about it is the curator, Joe Loosemore. Good morning, Joe. Hello, both. Thank you for having me. Tell us what the reaction from the people of Plymouth has been so far. Absolutely astounding. And I think a great deal of that is is relief that it has finally opened because obviously it's been a long project, four years now, a lot of investment, as you suggested, certainly in financial terms, but also in emotional terms. And a lot of people have given an awful lot to it. So it was really lovely just to open and to see people come in and actually react to the galleries and the exhibitions that we've been working on for so long. So tell us all about the Mayflower exhibition because I think it's completely debunking a lot of myths about the Mayflower, isn't it? Yeah, and that was the idea right from the start. Just before you set off, Joe, just to make it clear to our listeners that the Mayflower left from Plymouth with the pilgrims to the US uh, yeah. 400 years ago, which is why Plymouth is, why the box opening coincides with the 400th anniversary. That's absolutely right. So Plymouth was the last point of departure for the Mayflower in September of 1620. So we're marking the 400th anniversary of that sailing. But it's a difficult anniversary in many ways because the Mayflower wasn't the first ship, the first English ship to sail across the Atlantic. They weren't the first colonists to set up an English colony in America. And therein you have a challenge in itself in that this is a colonial story. And I think our approach right from the start was to tell this in collaboration with the Wampanoag Native Americans. So the Wampanoag Nation is the tribal nation populated by descendants today of those Native Americans who met the passengers of the Mayflower 400 years ago. And so we've co-curated this show. And so what that means is that it is a long way from the traditional story. But when you tell the story with the Wampanoag people, you get a very, very different telling. So it's a story that starts much earlier. So their society is 12,000 years old. And for them, this story is living history because they are still dealing with the impact of colonisation and the relationship with England. I mean, in many ways, this is... um a sensitive issue and it, it fall it, it's kind of telling you, you would have been curating this for 
probably a couple of years. Um, but it's interesting that your take on it falls squarely within the whole debate, if you like. Uh, some people call it a culture war about uh, Britain's long history of colonialism and our uh, involvement in the in the slave trade. I mean, have you been criticised for taking uh, this approach? Yeah, we started with this approach three and a half years ago. So it predates lots of what we've seen this year. But I think with the Mayflower story, it is absolutely a shared story. And it always has been. It's shared between the English and the Wampanoag, certainly. But there's a Dutch element of this story as well. And there's also um, an earlier Anglo-American dimension to it as well. So I think it's always been shared. And in a way, you know, our approach was actually in many ways to go back to those original sources. And the, so the first source material to come out of the Plymouth colony was actually 1622. And it details a lot of Native American politics and the interactions between different peoples of different cultures. So what sort of objects have you brought in to retell this story? I and mean, what are people actually going to see? Well, that was actually our biggest challenge. So we realised early on that we were going to have to work with museums, libraries and archives all over this country and the US and the Netherlands as well in order to tell this story. So we have effectively collected objects from four different nations over four centuries. So that means objects as diverse as, say, Peter Bast's 1600 map of Leiden, which is where the, the idea for the voyage originates. But at the same time, we have a contemporary Wampanoag piece that was Plymouth's first commission ever to a Wampanoag artist. But we also have um, pieces like the Alden Bible. So John Alden was one of the passengers. He was a cooper who joined the ship in Southampton. And his Bible is in the collections of Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. So we borrowed the Bible from them. And it's an extraordinary piece because it throws up all of the challenges that you face when you're doing a Mayflower exhibition. So this Bible, on its box, says that the Bible travelled across the Atlantic on the Mayflower in 1620, which is interesting given the Bible inside the box wasn't printed until 1633. <laughs> if every object that I was told sailed on the Mayflower actually sailed on the Mayflower, the Mayflower would never have sailed. It yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So it's it's been the most sort of fascinating um, adventure in a way to try and find objects that will enable us to to tell this story and over four centuries and more. It does sound absolutely fascinating. And can you just tell us a bit as well about all the contemporary stuff that's going on and what else everybody can see in the museum? It's extraordinary, really, because I first started working working in the museum as it was then, dare I say, over 20 years ago. And we were a good city museum with, with I think, you know, a, a regional remit. 
Um, now that museum in the form of the box is three times larger in terms of its physical footprint so it means that we've we've expanded sort of what we do and the kind of materials we work with but we've also expanded our space as well I just think now you get such a such an idea of the the breadth of not just Plymouth history in all its forms, but you know, you also get a sense of Plymouth's impact on the world and the world's impact on Plymouth, I think. Um, and it's a much, much richer visitor experience, I think. The box is not a very inspiring name. Well, Ed, I, I think, you know, that's that's your view on the name. Of course, um, I couldn't possibly comment on that, that in that regard. But what I would say is that, you know, the box actually refers to this massive great box that has been put sort of on the top but slightly behind the Edwardian building Um, and it gives it this really contemporary feel that of course we didn't have before and I suppose it's a play on the whole sense of you know what's in the box, opening the box, um, thinking outside the box, it's you know it's a play on all of that really. I mean it must be very frustrating for you given your long-term involvement, um, that it's had to open in the middle of COVID. Yeah, I mean, that really has been, well, you know, for everyone, it's been the most extraordinary year, hasn't it? It means that, you know, we've had to spend time thinking about, you know, how you manage groups of people around a new building that you yourself are only just getting used to. So what we've done is we've left an open route around so people do choose their direction and the sequence that they they go to things in but we do have sort of time tickets every half an hour so it means that we manage the people coming into the building and of course you know as you would expect everybody has to wear face coverings and and so far everybody's being you know very very good with that and to be honest you know we are one of the you know the few cultural venues that that are open in our in our area so of course you know people are excited to to come in and to get the kind of you know visual and intellectual stimulation that we've all been seeking over this lockdown period exactly and that's what this podcast is all about because everyone's desperate to break out and go and see things charlotte and i are going to hightail it down to the box <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, just don't be put off by the name, Ed. You know, you'll be fine inside. So with us today, we've got the brilliant artist, Jonathan Yeo. Now, Jonathan is uh, very famous because he's painted lots of very famous people as well. He's painted lots of politicians. He's painted Tony Blair, David Cameron, William Hague. He hasn't painted Ed Vasey, which I know is something that <laughs> niggle, niggles him. And it's a big hole in his oeuvre. He's painted royalty, Prince Philip and the Duchess of Cornwall. He's painted Hollywood A-listers, Kevin Spacey, Nicole Kidman, Dennis Hopper, Idris Elba, Helena Bonham Carter, Tom Hollander. He's even painted his own fellow artist, Grayson Perry, Damien Hirst. He's painted Cara Delevingne, Sir David Attenborough. And of course, he famously created a portrait of George W. Bush uh, made as a collage of pornographic images. In 2013, the National Portrait Gallery gave him a retrospective. And after that, he started seriously experimenting in the world of tech. 
His extraordinary futuristic bronze head used 3D printing and scanning. Virtual reality and Google tilt brush was on display, and it was on display at the Royal Academy in 2018. Since then, his interest in the intersection between art and technology has grown and grown. In fact, uh, I followed jo Johnny on Instagram. I think he's probably quite an annoying person if you're married to him or his offspring to go on holiday with, because there are lots and lots of drone photos. I can imagine he spends all day flying his drone. But anyway, he's here to talk about something that actually is very interesting to me, which is the intersection of arts and technology, because it's a big uh, obsession of mine about artists embracing the use of technology. Jonathan, welcome from after my incredibly tedious introduction. <laughs> Thanks. I should, I should actually point out that I have been formally banned from taking my drone on holiday now. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, Jonathan, hello, and it's very, very nice to talk to you again. Jonathan will already be known to readers of Country and Townhouse because I talked to you about that bronze head and your series of portraits of people undergoing plastic surgery two years ago, the same year you were named Artist of the Year by GQ magazine. Then recently I interviewed you in lockdown when you were doing a series of FaceTime portraits with the Hollywood director Dexter Fletcher, Professor Brian Cox and broadcaster Fern Cotton. You managed to do these by having them sit for you on an iPad next to your easel. But we really want to talk to you today about your newest venture, which was still under wraps when we last talked. So tell our listeners and us all about the extraordinary new app, which allows anyone to visit your studio virtually. And I challenge you to explain it in words because I can't. <laughs> that's okay. Well, that's a good challenge. Um, so the the gist of it was that, uh, and it was a, it was it came out of the lockdown in multiple ways because, um, firstly. Obviously, we had a bit of time on our hands, uh, and um, I had a um, talented uh, coding student who's um, come from Goldsmiths, who's been helping me with some um, techie installation work. And I, um, we, we wanted to make use of the, the time during the lockdown. So the experiment was to see what we could do using what, what's known as augmented reality. So um, using your phone um, rather than a headset to uh, see something that's not there in front of you. Um, I think you know there are a few of these things floating around already. I'm sure a lot of people have tried it. You can download furniture from the IKEA um, app and look at what it, look, see what it might be like in your room. It's very easy to do that to bring objects into your space, as it were. Um, but the interesting things seem to me to be to see whether you could actually sort of do something a bit more immersive, but also treat the studio like an object itself and make a studio visit a different kind of experience. What the app does is it allows you to really look around the space. It's not just a one of those things where you're doing a um, you know, one of those sort of like virtual tours of somewhere where you're in the middle of a room and you can just rotate it around. You can go into the corners, you can go behind things, under things, around things. You can really look as if you were moving around the space yourself. It's incredibly detailed, isn't it? I mean, I've done it and you can almost open, you can go into drawers and things, can't you? I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Exactly. And I think the fun now is that you can carry on adding more things. So you could literally, we could literally let people open drawers and have, have different experiences in there, which is the plan is to therefore use this as a kind of a platform to build more experiences and things on over the coming months. You've invented this technology. Uh, I wouldn't say, no, I absolutely haven't invented any of it. But I think what we're doing with it is using various existing technologies in a way that I haven't I haven't seen anyone else do so far. God, I'm quite geeky, Ed, as you know, and I think, Char <laughs> I think Charlotte, you've seen enough of it as yeah, well. Yeah, I definitely know. Um, and, and I think the um, 
uh, one of the things I did in the last couple of years was I sort of started trying to teach myself how to use um, computer game engines. We can potentially do live events. That's the thing we're trying to work on at the moment. So we could be looking at you know, this, this model of your, the studio on the table in front of you. And you could see us having this conversation as if we were in the room there and it's going on live. So what I'm interested in is, could we go in and see you actually painting Jamie Oliver? And if we wanted to do that, how would we, you know, do you have to sort of book a time when we could go in and see you do that? So far, what, what, what the, so the thing you can do is you can see a, a, a sort of like a few minutes of me painting Jamie Oliver in the position we were in the studio. You can see him on the iPad and me. And then it, so we've cheated and done a sort of slightly kind of transparent holographic version of me because it's quite difficult to get a 3D sort of miniature person looking convincing. Um, but you can see the painting evolving on the easel. And then you can look around the room and find other little hidden things. Gradually, the idea is to then you know, make it a bit like a um, you know, little sort of thing where you, could, you, know, you don't really know when you go in there what you're going to find. Um, my, uh, someone, I think it might've been my wife, um, suggested it should be called Pokemon Yo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How has sort of technology changed you as, as a painter? Is, is this, what I'm trying to get to is there's, I love the geekiness and I love the experimenting with technology, but would you look back and say, I'm so pleased I've found and used this technology. It's made me a different painter. It's enhanced my artistry. It's a good question. In a funny way, portraiture, I think, is a very technical uh, type of art because you are, you know, it requires a level of precision. Uh, and even if you're going to deviate from it, you need to know the kind of science of what you're looking at. You're often using other technologies where um, obviously, arguably paint is a technology, but often use photographs and other things as well. And yeah, I did, you know, you're translating something from three dimensions into two dimensions or something, you know, and it's, it's a kind of illusionistic, but a very you know, kind of trickery that's involved, but a very um, exact one. And that where you, if you go wrong, everyone knows you've gone wrong with it. Um, but I think that the, I, I don't know, I mean, I didn't go into any of these things looking for ways to kind of make the painting better. And I think that I'd be surprised even if, you know, even, even you know, I think we're, we're a long way away from the one hand paint, you know, technology being able to replicate what, a painting does and that's why it's endured for hundreds thousands of years i think what is interesting is it is in in, in the, how it informs the stories you tell and i think that as we are all st starting to find out technology is impacting our lives in lots of ways it's impacting you know daily lives it's impacting politics it's you know we, it, 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 it's 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 impossible to ignore it and, and in other ways it's, it is also it, i think but it just me is that it, it impacts how we communicate with other people and that because that's for me was what portraiture other faces have been always about non-verbal communication I, I feel that it's useful to learn what this technology is capable of in case there's something there that you can make use of i think that's brilliant just going back to the uh art of portraiture i know that um as i said earlier it's a big gap in your life that you haven't painted my portrait but <laughs> what, is there is there anyone else uh, if you could wave your uh, a magic wand, as it were, um, that whose portrait you'd love to paint that you haven't painted? I don't know. I, mean, I think I think I, I mean I have to say either Trump or Putin um, would be an interesting subject. Just oh, please paint Trump. Please paint Trump. <laughs> In terms of actually what's enjoyable to do, actually painting other creative people or people doing 
inventive things that you're interested in is 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 the is is is, is interesting. I think you know I, th- I would be quite interested in paint to people like Elon Musk. Generally, that so people who are, who are, who invent things, um, and yeah, that that's always so interesting. Whether it's you know something creative or something technical or scientific, that is always those people tend to be very fascinating and and worthy of spending quite a few hours chatting to. I want to ask you one final question. Uh, we've talked about how technology informs the artist, as it were. It's a tool for you to, to, to experiment and, and see what might work and what might not. Does it work in the other direction? Does the artist inform the tech? I think they should. <laughs> how, much, how much attention... I mean, what seems to happen a lot is they go, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, we never would have thought... I mean, we hadn't really thought... I mean, yeah, great. That's really brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And then they do nothing about it at all. <laughs> they pay no attention at all. Um, that seems to happen quite a lot. Like we get a really good feedback, and uh, it doesn't change anything at all. I don't know. I, mean, I think I think that potentially there is a great synergy there because um, yeah, then there are a lot of very creative people in the tech world, um, but often they're very consumed with what they think this technology, whatever the new thing, should be for, um, and what it's been designed for. And often the most interesting things come from people using these technologies and these innovations for purposes they weren't designed for. And I think that's where. Perhaps, you know, I hope more artists do get involved with it in, in the coming years, because I think that the, the barrier to entry in those things is getting much lower and you don't have to know how it works. You don't have to understand AI. Um, yeah, you just, you just need to have a go at it. Well, let's hope Trump is listening to this and phones you up and you get to do his portrait. And I feel another George W. Bush type portrait coming on, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, yes, exactly. One or the other, depending if he says yes. <laughs> um, you're a total star, Johnny. Thanks so much um, for spending time with us. Really appreciate it. No, thank, thank you. you. It's lovely. That's all we've got time for today. But please tune in next week as we're hoping to have Andrew Lloyd Webber with us to tell us his view on the future of theatre. For now, you can find details of everything we've talked about on our website, countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter full of exciting offers and competition prizes and find Carol Annette's podcast on Interiors, House Guest. We love your feedback, so please keep it coming. And you can email us on breakoutculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk or leave your comments on the podcast site you use. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.